What's new in science this week? What's new in science this week? Bench talk, the week in science. Bench talk. Bench talk. Bench talk. You are now listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. Bench Talk, the, the week, week in, in science. science. Hey there, Dave Robinson here, and Happy New Year! I hope you caught our show last week, it was December 27th, 2021, where we featured a keynote speaker from this year's annual conference of the Kentucky Academy of Science. It was astronomer and cosmologist Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, who spoke about dark matter and dark energy. And she also gave her perspectives as a black feminist scientist. Well, we're continuing to report on the Kentucky Academy of Science Conference this week, too. Today, you'll hear from three undergraduate student scientists who presented their research at this year's conference. First, it's Logan Stewart and Matthew Pointner from Western Kentucky University. That's in Bowling Green, Kentucky. They won first place in the mathematics section for their talk called Wolfram Demonstration Projects to Simulate the Control of Vibrations on a String. They're being interviewed here by Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Take it away, Amanda. Hi, this is Amanda Fuller from the Kentucky Academy of Science, and I am continuing my series of interviews today with student competition winners from the Kentucky Academy of Science annual meeting which happened in November, 2021. And I have two winners here from the mathematics section and I would like y'all to introduce yourselves for us today. All right, I can go ahead. Uh, hi, I'm Logan Stewart. Uh, I'm from the Gatton Academy down in Bowling Green and Western Kentucky University. I'm a senior down at Gatton. Yes, and I'm Matthew Pointer. I am also a Western Kentucky student. I graduated from Gatton last year. So now I am just a regular Western Kentucky junior. Excellent. Thank you all for joining us today. I'm so glad to have you with us. I also want to congratulate you on deciding to do this interview today because the work that you do is mathematics. And I know that that can be kind of a challenging thing to convey on the radio. So thanks for being here. And I'm excited to share with our listeners a little bit about your work. I do want to share with folks that your presentation is available if people go to our website. It's at kyscience.org. If you go to the online program, you'll see all the presentations and abstracts uh, that people presented there. And you can go and see Logan Stewart and Matthew Pointer's presentation there. You can see lots of diagrams and graphs and charts that they're gonna describe for you in the interview. So you might wanna go check it out there and you can see a little bit more about what they're doing. I wonder if one of you would start by just telling us a little bit about what your research is about and what it's for. Yeah, sure. Uh, I can do that. So um, what our research is, it is modeling uh, differential equations in a programming language called Mathematica. And uh, these differential equations describe controlling a, uh, a string that is uh, loose at one end and tied down on another. This has applications in uh, both aviation and like modeling beams, stuff like that, and also in uh, sound and acoustics, stuff like that as well. 
great. And you mentioned that this is all modeling on a computer. There's no yeah. lab mm -hmm. that you go into wearing a lab coat when you do this work. <laughs> I wonder if you want to describe a little bit about what that process looks like. How long does it take? What are some things that you have found or had to adapt to as you've gone through the research process? A lot of the things that we do in terms of like a day-to-day, -day, what does this research look like? It's a lot of coding. It's a lot of math and a lot of coding. And so we've got some things that we know, okay, we should see results that look about like this. But for the most part, we're seeing new different results each time. And uh, what we're seeing is that we want to run, run quicker, run more accurately, um, and to do it in a way that can give the user interface a, a really good experience. Because what we're building here is a user interface where you can actually be able to go online and download our project and actually manipulate the different variables into the equation and see how the stream will move through time. And that mm -hmm. is kind of our product that we're producing. And we're kind of comparing the different cases versus what different things in that equation might look like in terms of their output, in terms of computation times, in terms of how quickly these dampened strings will, will kind of come to rest uh, and things like that. Yeah. And so I want you to tell us a little bit more about the different initial conditions that you're assessing. In the presentation, you have several different shapes of strings that go along with those. And you said these are examples of other kinds of shapes and that you could really write a model for any kind of shape. One of the things that we do is we were designed, we were kind of hired and brought into this project in order to expand the scope. Originally, the, the project did really well with um, sine waves, and that was some of the things that you could model with it. And while that is very useful and very common in, in applications, uh, we wanted to make it more interesting and introduce different discontinuities and such. And so we chose six different types of initial conditions. I think whether it be a square wave or a sawtooth type wave or like a box uh, looking shape, we wanted to see what it, the, the, the string would look like um, and how our uh, solution methods would behave under these different uh, initial conditions. And what we found is that, that our solution methods are very robust and that they can handle pretty much whatever we can throw at them within reason. As long as the physics of the situation makes sense in, in terms of, of, of the string, you will be able to get a reasonable result out of it. And that's one of the things that we're very pleased about. That's great. And you also told me that you are working with other people on this research. You have a research team that's working with you. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about the rest of the folks on the team and how your work is helping out other people's research. We have two other people right now working on the project with us. We have a graduate assistant, Ahmet. Uh, he does the actual like math stuff, actually discretizing the differential equations into something that we can put into code. So our job is to putting that math that he gives us, putting that into code. And uh, also we have a research mentor, which helps him with that. When you do the calculations, what is that process like? How long does it take? Have you encountered any problems or challenges in, in running those models? So actually recently for our uh, recent KAS presentation, we were tasked with creating some animations that we could show in front of a live audience. And we wanted it to be something that was fairly spontaneous and could play through and show several different methods side by side. And since solving these PDEs is a pretty complex computational endeavor, especially over long periods of time and, and with different initial conditions like we're, like we're starting with, solving those computationally can take some time. So one of the things that we did was pre-compute it. It was actually pretty interesting because 
in the process of making those animations, we found just a lot of different ways to make our code a lot better and a lot faster. I think one night I spent like two hours doing something and had to like wait, go out to dinner and come back and see how it's doing. It was like three quarters of the way done. I was like, man, I got to keep waiting. But the next day I took a look at the code and I was like, can I make this faster? And I actually was able to, and that inspired us to make a more user-friendly end product because that's kind of what we're designing. We're designing a user interface, uh, as I mentioned before. So we were able to go in and find some errors in our code where we were computing some things a lot more times than we needed to. And by cutting down on that, we were able to um, make our code run a lot quicker. And since we're, our end goal is trying to make a user experience where you can dynamically change some different variables and we want to see a fairly quick output change, that's something that's, that's really awesome. And we were able to speed it up and make the, the demonstration a lot uh, more user-friendly. So that was something we were pretty proud of. That's fantastic. I wish everybody had those kind of moments in their research. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting with code. There, there's some things that's like, it doesn't look like it's going to be something all that difficult. And then it gets really difficult. And then like, all of a sudden, it's like an extra comma or something that you spend an hour or two searching for. And uh, it can be tedious, but at the end, it's very rewarding. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what's coming next in the research. Going further, we're going to adapt our uh, string equation code to handle three layer beams. So that has a lot more like uh, a lot more variables in it. So it's a lot more of a complex case, but we have like preliminary models of the, of the three layer beam equation, but um, we're going to, we're going to use the stuff we've already made with the initial conditions we already made to adapt that into a three layer beam case. Yeah, and it is a much more computationally complex case, but it's also a much more rewarding case. These uh, strings, while they are useful in a lot of different uh, modeling senses, especially in terms of acoustics and such, when you come to beams, we see these a lot more frequently in engineering contexts. So things like buildings, airplanes, wind turbines, um, mm -hmm. even piezoelectric devices, I think lighters and, and sound stuff. There are a lot more applications for these things. And this is kind of a stepping stone in our research project. So we're really proud of the work that we've done, but we're certainly not done yet. And yeah. we, we've got a long way to go and we're, we are uh, very excited about what the future holds. I have to ask you, when you look around you into the real world, do you just see objects everywhere and think that you want to write an equation for what they look like? Oh, that's, that's fun. Um, <laughs> sometimes you look at something and you're like, wow, I've modeled a lot of things and this just looks so complex. Um, yeah. What could there, what possible structure could there be in any of this? And that is, it's one of the things that I kind of look at around in the world and, and kind of see just almost from a philosophical point of view, it's like, wow, this is, this is so complex. Like how, how did this come to be and how is this even predictable? And, yeah. and that's what, mm -hmm. that's what I see a lot of. Yeah. Well, it's been so fun talking to you all. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us for Bench Talk. And good luck to you in your future research. Look forward to seeing you next year at the Kentucky Academy of Science annual meeting to mm -hmm. present whatever you have learned in this next year. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Congratulations, Logan and Matthew. Now let's hear from Kaylee D. Long at Georgetown College in Georgetown, Kentucky. Her talk on the neurobiology of red-sided garter snakes was awarded third place in the KAS Physiology Biochemistry section. Here she is being interviewed by Rob Weber 
who is the brand new communications and policy director of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Welcome, Rob. Let's hear this interview now. This is Rob Weber with the Kentucky Academy of Science. I'm with Kaylee D. Long. She's a undergraduate student at Georgetown College studying biology and psychology. And she was among the student winners at the Academy of Sciences 2021 annual meeting. She presented in the physiology and biochemistry section and presented research entitled Corticotropin Releasing Hormone in Red-Sided Garter Snakes During Mating Season and Migration. Kaylee D., welcome. Hi. Hi. Good to have you here. Could you tell me a bit about the research that you presented? Yeah. So I went over to University of California, Irvine, (laughs) to um, Dr. Luderschmidt's lab. So they collect snakes in Manitoba, Canada, and well, they do a lot of different things with them, but in this scenario, they took brain slides once the snakes came out of hibernation and once they were in the middle of migration, and they were looking at physiological differences between the two to see if they could see what causes the shift between all right, it's time to mate. All right, I'm hungry. It's time to go eat. Is there a special reason why the snakes came from Canada? So this is where the red-sided garter snake heaven is. There's all kinds of them there, and they're very friendly when they come out of mating season, and they're not, they've been known to slither all over everybody and all the lab equipment and all that stuff. So it's a good place to find them. What drew you to being interested in this kind of research? I've always loved biology and especially like the ecology side. And then I also really love psych and the brain. And I think that's really fascinating. And so I was looking at research, trying to decide where I wanted to spend my summer. And I stumbled across this research and it seemed like a really fun combination of, well, we got the ecology and like it's snakes and they're cool. And then we've got the physiology of the brain and what causes this to happen. And I just thought that that was really interesting. Did you use any interesting equipment or did you have any challenges that required you to get creative? So I got to use a a really cool microscope. So I used that to count the cells and it was difficult to get to learn the, the brain. And so I had to learn how to look through the slides and know where I was at in the snake brain. And then, so I counted specifically in the hypothalamus. So I had to recognize when we entered into the hypothalamus and then towards the end of it. And it was difficult to tell what was a cell and what wasn't a little bit because the staining technique, but eventually I got to where I could spot it pretty easy. Um, So that was fun to see, like, as the summer went on, how at first I was like, what in the world is this? And then by the end, it was like, okay, that's a cell and that's the hypothalamus. And then I I got to run through immunohistochemistry too, to see how the slides got to that point, which was also a fun experience because I love working in the lab. So I understand the pandemic did have an impact on the research. Could you tell me about that? Yeah. So the experiment I was working on, the snakes had been collected a few years prior, 
but current research had been halted a little bit because the border to Canada was shut down. So they hadn't been able to go up and get snakes for a while. Was there anything you found during your research that was particularly surprising to you? Yeah. So when I learned about the HPA axis and how stress hormones are created, we learned that it's basically a step-by-step process. And so stress hormones are released after corticotropin releasing hormone is created. And so that's the canonical understanding. However, in my research, we already knew that cortisol was higher in these snakes, but we did not find that corticotropin releasing hormone was higher. So that's really interesting and was very surprising and is something I definitely want to look into more. And we found corticotropin releasing hormone in the cortex, which is also very interesting because it most likely isn't acting as a hormone as it is in the hypothalamus in that area, because hormones typically send out their response and happen elsewhere in the body, but in the cortex, it's a much shorter distance that cells have their effect. Could you tell me a bit more about the results and how that information is going to be useful? Yeah. So like I said, the results weren't what we were expecting. We actually didn't find a difference in corticotropin releasing hormone in the hypothalamus between snakes who were migrating and snakes who had just entered mating season, which we thought might have been the cause for the shift between those two. And I think this research is really useful because it shows just how intricate the brain is and that we really have a lot to learn. And honestly, I also learned that snake brains and human brains aren't quite as different as you would think they are. So this research is very relevant. Are there other people working on related research? So I know the Luderschmidt lab has been in this research for a while and they're still working on it. And I'm actually going to be completing my honors thesis on a slew of this research from the past roughly decade. So I'm interested in doing that and to see where the research heads, because I know they're still working on it. So have you always been interested in biology from a young age? Yeah, so I've always liked science, but I really liked school in general until my junior year of high school is when I had my first biology class and I fell in love. (laughs) So I've really enjoyed it since then. And once getting into college, I really realized I like psychology too. So I just really enjoy learning how everything works together and how people think. So what's next for you? So I don't have an exact plan yet, but I would really like to continue working in research especially if I could somehow work together biology and psychology. You led off your research presentation by posing the question, why did the snake cross the road? Did you come up with an answer for that? Yeah, so the snake crossed the road because he was hungry. (laughs) So the snakes come out of their hibernacula and the intermating season, and then they start migrating to the feeding grounds. And across their migration is a road. So to get to the feeding ground, they have to cross the road. So he crossed the road because he was hungry. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kaylee D. For our listeners, I know that you have told me that if they want to follow you, that they can do so on Instagram 
by checking out the username 21KDEE. I appreciate your joining us today, telling us all about your research and what drew you into your field. It's been interesting and I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me. That was Kaylee D. Long at Georgetown College. Congratulations, Kaylee D. And we'll feature more interviews with student research in future episodes of Bench Talk the Week in Science, so stay tuned. And we want to thank Amanda Fuller and Rob Weber for conducting these informative interviews and letting us listen in. And now, astronomy. Here's an update on what we can see in the night sky this month, and we're talking January of 2022. It's J. Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College in Maysville, Kentucky, describing the stars, planets, constellations, etc. that await us in the January sky. Take it away, Scott. Scott here. January is here, and that usually means cold weather. The advantage to cold weather is that it does tend to dry out the atmosphere a bit, making for crisper viewing. But the disadvantage is that it's cold weather. But there are sights to see that can be quite easy, so I steel myself against the cold, putting on a heavy coat, gloves, and stocking cap, and head out. During the first week of January, an alignment of planets can be seen in the western sky by about 6 o'clock in the evening. Closest to the horizon and a bit of a challenge is Mercury. Mercury has effectively replaced Venus, the herald of the western sky, through most of the autumn months. But its visitation is brief. By the middle of the month, it may be all but gone, along with a second planet, Saturn. During the first week of January, Saturn is found between Mercury and the much brighter Jupiter. Finding it will help to mark the western sky as darkness falls. Because Saturn is closer to Mercury, it will be following it into disappearance while Jupiter lingers a bit longer. Jupiter will attempt to be something to view until about mid-February. So with the planets doing a slow fade in the west, thoughts can turn toward constellations. And as we are in the winter sky, there are more than a few that stand out, both because of their shapes and they contain one or more pretty bright stars. In the southeast is an easily found pattern of stars. That pattern is Orion the Hunter. It is well above the horizon in the evening skies of January. Throughout the rest of the winter and on into spring, he will be seen to march across the southern sky before disappearing altogether later this spring. What stands out most for many people is a line of three stars. Each are quite bright, and a line of stars close together is something not easily visible in the sky. These three stars are a belt worn at the waist of Orion. A dimmer pair of stars just south of the belt mark a sword tucked there. 10 by 50 binoculars or a small telescope will reveal that that middle star is a gas cloud called the Orion Nebula. Here new stars are forming and their output causes the surrounding gas to glow like a neon sign. To finish up Orion, two bright stars north of the belt mark his shoulders. Two bright stars south of the belt mark his knees. If the skies are dark, that is, not too light-polluted, a small grouping of three stars midway between and up from the shoulder stars mark his head. Collectively, not too difficult to see a human figure there among those stars. Another reason I like to find Orion is that, like the Big Dipper, combinations of stars in Orion lead to other stars in other constellations. 
This is particularly true about the belt stars. A line extended beyond the belt stars up and to the west lead to Aldebaran. This star is the brightest star in a constellation known as Taurus the Bull. Taurus is another constellation that is somewhat easy to picture, at least as far as his face and head. Aldebaran is pictured as one of his eyes. Near to Aldebaran can be seen a V-shaped group of stars with Aldebaran at one end of the arm of the V. The V-shaped pattern of stars is actually a cluster that is traveling through space together, called the Hyades Star Cluster. Aldebaran happens to lie along the line toward the cluster, but isn't part of it. Aldebaran is closer to Earth, so this gives sort of a 3D effect with a little imagination. A bit west of the Hyades is a tighter grouping of stars called the Pleiades. They are also traveling together as a group in our galaxy and are farther from us than Hyades, further allowing that 3D imagination thing to work. They also mark the shoulder of Taurus. If the line of stars marking each arm of the V-shaped Hyades is extended, two more relatively bright stars are reached, marking the tip of the horns of Taurus. So basically, we see the front half of this bull. As prominent as Orion and Taurus are, and located next to each other in the sky, the ancient Greeks and Romans did not seem to create a story involving both. It would seem kind of natural, one being a hunter, the other one the hunted. Maybe a task for a modern storyteller. Farther over in the eastern sky are a pair of stars of about the same brightness. These are the stars Castor and Pollux. They make up the heads of the brothers collectively called Gemini, the twins. Castor and Pollux are not only the names of the stars, but the names of each of those twins. A line of stars stretching back in the direction where Orion marked their bodies. A good star map can help with this. Another somewhat prominent pattern to find can be located almost directly overhead. This is a pattern of square stars all around the same brightness. This is the great square of Pegasus, the winged horse. The pattern of a horse is somewhat upside down. The line of stars heading off from the southwestern corner, then including a somewhat brighter star away from Jupiter, would be the neck and head. Two lines of stars extending westward from the northwest corner star marks the front legs. A pair extending from the northeastern star, forming somewhat of a V pattern, mark the back legs. A good star map and some imagination might be necessary to pull this all together. That V-shaped pattern is actually the constellation Andromeda, the Chained Maiden. I have mentioned her and her story in earlier episodes. Starting with the northeastern star of the Great Square of Pegasus, one first sees a pair of stars of about the same brightness, side by side. Then going out a bit further, a second pair that are a bit farther apart. There is a third pair, even farther apart, completing the V. Hidden within Andromeda is the Andromeda Galaxy. This is the closest big galaxy to our own and the farthest object one can see with the naked eye, under dark sky conditions, that is. To find it, go to the second pair of stars that make up the V shape of Andromeda, a line that goes from the brighter of the two towards the dimmer and then extended about that same distance can lead to the Andromeda galaxy. Under dark skies, away from city lights, a faint blur is seen. Binoculars or a small telescope can reveal a bit more of that blur. Again, this might take a star map to be sure. 
As this is winter, staying out too long to hunt for constellations all in one evening might be a physical challenge. But the constellations are not going anywhere, and taking one's time picking up a new one each evening, then reviewing those patterns over time will make them seem like good friends. With each successful evening, they will become a bit easier to find. Clear skies. Well, that's our show today. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the Week in Science. To listen to any of our older episodes, just go to forwardradio.org or check out our Facebook page. Now, this show is broadcast on Forward Radio every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.